I'm so proud to be part of that special family of, of women who feed the world. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Women in Food podcast series. Today you're going to have the pleasure to listen to Dee Woods. She's an awesome community activist in London. We're going to talk about black food sovereignty, how she got into cooking and building community resilience, and how she's growing food on small plots in her district. So without further ado, here comes the interview with Dee Woods. One of my first questions was that on Instagram you called Osung Child. Does it have any special meaning? Um, yes, it's pronounced Osun. Yes, it's a Yoruba, and Osun is the goddess or deity of love and creation and and joy. And I am an initiated priest of. Ocean. So that's why I'm Oshun's child. <laughs> right? And it basically is earth-based. I don't even call it a religion. It's an earth-based way of life, of connecting to the elements. So the deities are really elements. So Oshun is, is water, fresh water. Is it um, similar to the philosophy of ecofeminism or is it distinct? I would say some of the elements of ecofeminism have come out from that. If you look up Ifa or Arisha on the internet, um, there's a World Heritage site dedicated to Oshun. That's, you know, this amazing grotto of art and carvings and, you know, there's a big annual festival every year. I've never been one to go. But, you know, it's practiced in other parts of the world wherever Yoruba people ended up because of the slave trade. So Brazil, um, Cuba, Trinidad, where, where my heritage is from. So, yeah. If you look up Oshun, most likely spelled O-S-H-U-N. I spelled it the Yoruba spelling. Okay. I'm going to look it up. Sounds very, very interesting. What is your background? How did you end up in all this food sovereignty fight? So, born in London to parents from Trinidad and Tobago, and my dad, my family moved back when I was eight years old. My dad's a farmer, still is farming at 81, and just grew up around food. So, grew up with producing food, you know, having that, that knowledge sort of being passed on of growing food, of rearing animals, of being around animals, being around sort of orchards and, you know, just, just food growing as well as people who cook. So people who were professional caterers and bakers and, you know, and just generally as part of Trinidadian culture you know we, we celebrate everything is about food everything is a celebration and everything is about food so we were always cooking you know i i can't cook for less than 10 people <laughs> yeah so big big family doors are always open you know always lots of big pots of food and yeah 
Okay, and you, and you also got an award from the BBC as a Cook of the Year. Yeah. And I read that the presenter, Shaley Dillon, said, as always, we were looking for great food that's transforming society. So how is your cooking activity transforming society or your community? So the project that I co-founded and sort of co-run, Granville Community Kitchen, is located in what I call an underserved area. So it has for over 100 years experienced multiple deprivation. And, you know, kitchen was set up in response to people experiencing hunger and using food, using cooking as a way to bring people together and sort of, I'd always use the word empower, but to empower people, to, you know, give, give people agency and to know that you belong somewhere and that we're a community here and as a community we can work together to change things. So basically doing that part of the work but also doing like some political campaigning and lobbying alongside it but always a lot of times me representing that voice or, you know, encouraging people to use their own voice. So, you know, I would take people to parliamentary events I was invited to or would exchange with, with different communities and visit other communities and, you know, just build the confidence of people to know that your voice matters, your view, view matters. So I'm always around food, always cooking, always eating and sharing. So you're mostly cooking for Nidadian food? No, I cook food from all around the world. Um, so that, that little triangle, well, a little triangle, you know, in London, sort of three and a half thousand people and almost 400 languages are spoken. Right? So it is a very diverse area and I've always wanted my cooking to reflect the diversity of that area. So food from Tonga and Fiji right through to the Caribbean and America and Africa and India, you, you name it. So so for me, it's, it's, it's a learning experience as well because I'm learning from people from those communities as well. And you said that it's an underserved area. Is it also underserved in fresh fruit and fresh vegetables? Yes, it is. So... I, I use the term, terminology that um, Karen Washington uses, which is food apartheid, rather than food desert and food swamps, because to me, desert implies something natural as part of a natural ecosystem when it isn't natural. Someone's made a policy decision about that. So that's what my project tries to, you know, address. So we grow some food, We're in the process of looking for more land so that we can become a fully-fledged farm. But we also work with farmers and other growers in, in London and with farmers in West Africa right now um, to provide what we call a good food box, yeah, which is a solidarity veg box scheme aimed at low-income people and with culturally appropriate foods in it. And, and going to these policies, how is the situation in England and what what would you call whitewash policies to go back to the food apartheid maybe? So England has not had 
any sort of national food policy since World War II. Well, that's quite some time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, quite some time ago. Um, we have agriculture policy, uh, we have health policy, we have various other policies, but we don't have any national food policy. So food in itself hasn't really been high up on the political agenda till a couple of years ago when they started a national food strategy process. So the second part of that strategy should be published soon, very soon, I understand. Um, and that's supposed to set, you know, like a roadmap for food for the next 30 years. What there has been is food policy at the local level, but because there's no statutory food legislation, you know, we have to fight to make sure that it is taken up. So I am on the London Food Board. You know, London Food Board advises the Mayor of London around sort of policies and actions around food in London. And a large aspect of that has been around food growing. Um, we're bumping that up now to, to farming. You know, we've worked with the Environment Committee, yeah, to sort of try to open up land around sort of farming for, for London. Yeah, it is really, really difficult to get things in terms of, of food, it, you know, into any sort of policy. If it's around children, Yes, if it's around child health, you know, certain things, we're able to get it, get it in, but. And how do you think inclusive and anti-food apartheid policies would look like? Um, I think the London Food Board has really, really tried to do that. The thing is, can we send it up upstream so that includes sort of national food policy. And I've been critiquing it so far because to me it isn't really very inclusive. They haven't really consulted with sort of the, what, 14 or 15, I think we're about 16 or 17 percent of the population, you know, which is quite diverse from Asian to African to Caribbean with Brexit. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, no, it's like, we don't know what's what's happening with our, our food. With the pandemic, you know, borders have been shut. Lot, lots of issues are on accessing sort of culturally appropriate foods, um, either because it's too expensive or because it literally isn't coming into the country. So there are a lot of other things that impact on foods. But all we can do is lobby and try and work on policy proposals. So one of the things I worked on a few years ago as well was a people's food policy, which is a crowdsourced national sort of food strategy for England. Because Scotland, they're way ahead. They, they have their, their food bill. Wales have their food bill and whatever. Um, I think it's a one-planet strategy, right? But it's England who's behind. Yeah, so we worked on, you know, something that included sort of participatory governance, equity, finances, you, you name it. We looked at different aspects. Personally, I think it probably needs updating from current times and situations, but it is a really good, strong proposal for food that came from people. 
Did you see a surge in awareness about food during the pandemic and because of Brexit that people realized that a lot of food is imported? Uh, yeah, people are waking up to that. So even though in terms of like a lot of food education and events we've done and all the other networks I'm, I'm involved with, you know, we've, we've been saying, well, we need to produce more food at home. We need to change our relationships with what they call third countries and, you know, make that fairer and more equitable. People weren't politicized. Right? In fact, that for the first few weeks of this pandemic, so many people couldn't access food. And it is good. And, you know, because I'm involved in La Via Campesina, um, the ECVC, um, and generally just no farmers and, and networks, we know what is coming and I've been saying to people, we are going to have food shortages. That is now official, right? That is now official. Um, people know food prices are going to go up by at least 30% and that we will have food shortages in the new year. And partially down to farmers not being able to plant crops, They don't, they don't have the migrant workers to, to help them. They havenven't been able to reap crops either. A lot of crops were turned in very early on as well in, in Europe. I think 98% of our fruit comes from the EU. In the UK, yes. We had two years. Right? We should have been planting orchards 10 years ago. You know, we had two years where we could have started making some, some progress towards, you know, strengthening the food sovereignty of the UK. And, you know, food, and I'd include food security within it, but it is about us having, you know, really resilient food system that's, you know, inclusive of everyone's needs. And we're not ready for that. But maybe it's a good momentum right now, no? When people wake up. Um, it's a good momentum. A lot of people are tired, right? But, you know, we're, we're planning. We have to keep planning. We have to keep thinking of especially those communities who have no access to food right now other than food aid food aid is not sustainable because it's built mainly on surplus food coming from the industrial food system most of the organizations i know including us we're not going beyond april we cannot afford to go beyond april we know that food surplus will not be there because we have no hospitality industry anymore it literally has died right there will be no supermarket surplus because you know there'll probably just be enough for or just about enough for consumers for or for eaters rather big supermarkets have said there will be food shortages so you know so this is where a lot of work i've been doing and other people around sort of building community resilience through food is important i mean i know our community will not go hungry but because of our, our work with farmers because we're training people we're creating like what we call a pocket farm within the area so it's like we're growing on small plots of land someone has bees on on a rooftop you know we're, we're looking at all the spaces where we could possibly produce food okay so you have little patches of land where you produce different crops and uh, yeah and there's a giant park queen's park that has animal housing 
but no animals in it right now. So we're thinking of doing a micro dairy. So, you know, we're constantly thinking, experimenting, responding. Yeah. But if there will be food shortage in the UK and you're saying your community will not go hungry, it shows that the effort you have put in it for the last decade. Yeah, and not just me, you know, we're community efforts. Lots of people, we all have different skills and, and strengths and qualities. Everyone brings something. And you're raising your voice for black food sovereignty. Could you maybe briefly explain what it means? And um, what your, I mean, I think all your community work is towards black food sovereignty, right? I won't say all of it. For me, you know, I always talk about good food for all. And within the UK food movement or food sovereignty movement, there isn't, you know, it, it isn't really inclusive. Count on one hand, number of people of color in, involved in the movement. And it's one reasons why I got involved because it was that that lack of diversity. And food sovereignty movement in the US is completely different. You know, there's that long history of farming and of activism around food. Um, you know, with Karen Washington, you know, being who I know, you know, being like one of one of my sheroes, you know, in terms of work she she's done in urban areas. But Yeah, no, and, and it's because they've focused, right, these are black communities who, who, are, who aren't getting food. That's what needs to be done here as well, because a large majority of the people who are going without food, particularly in cities like London, are black people, mainly African and Asian women. So we can't wait for policy. I know how long policy takes. So policies take time. Yes, it's still good to work on policies and make sure that they're there, right? Because then it supports the work you're doing. But, you know, we have to do that work in the interim. So for me, black food sovereignty, I always say it isn't separatist. Yeah, because it works in benefit of everyone. It just sort of highlights the communities that really need effort and not really special attention, but who need to work work on their, their food access, their food ways, food production. So farming in the UK is probably the whitest profession, right? And we have a world of people who have skills, who have knowledge, or people who want, you know, generations of, of people who've grown up here who are disconnected from land and who want to produce food but don't know how to get involved. So, yeah, for me, food sovereignty generally, but particularly black food sovereignty is about abolition and liberation and breaking down and dismantling those structures of oppression so that everyone can meet their right to food and to live in dignity. How do you see the role of female food producers or farmers or community growers in the future? I think, you know, we always dominate, but we're not seen, right? We're the ones who are feeding the world. I always say that. We're the ones who feed the world, but we're not seen. And I love that the project that the Gaia Foundation did 
with We Feeding World, which is now a book which I have to get, you know, which highlighted amazing female farmers from around the world, many who, who I know. And it is that we need to raise our visibility, right? But we also need to be more involved in, you know, go, going upstream in, in the policy making. Honestly, I think, I think I'm a policy maker, but the new type of policy maker who's grounded in the grassroots and in the communities. So we need to come together as women to basically put down on paper what we need to support us as women as women who are producing food, as women who probably have caring responsibilities as well, both for, for children and for elders and, you know, in wider context of our communities. And we we need more support, I would say, to, to do that. But we, we feed the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm so proud to be part of that special family of, of women who feed the world always say we we are knowledge keepers with seed keepers you know we bring so much more than just picking stuff in fields or, or planting or dairy farming or whatever it is we hold so so much and we give so much to our communities and to the world so we we'll always feature M machines can never you know replace us and in, in terms of equity, we, we need to work on our, our rights as well. Yeah, it is about building that equity and food system where we are recognised, acknowledged and truly, I would say, honoured for what we do in the world. So that was the interview with Dee Woods. I hope you enjoyed it a lot. And I think it was very interesting how she talked about herself as the new type of policymaker that is still rooted in the grassroots movement. Also interesting was the term food apartheid she introduced opposed to food desert. And last but not least, I think it was beautiful to see how her efforts led to a more resilient community that will not go hungry even if the UK is facing food shortages in the beginning of next year. So that was it for today and stay tuned for the next interview.